Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. It's time once again for another mind-bending episode of Discovering the Old Testament. This is episode 48, where we will continue our discussion of the final formation and canonization of the Hebrew Scriptures, a process that went far beyond the Great Assembly when Ezra the scribe bound the Jews to the Torah as a canonical text and made its study the central feature of Jewish religious life. Obviously, there is more to the canonical Hebrew scriptures than just the first five books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, although from time to time there have been movements within Judaism that claimed the canon ought not to have been extended beyond those. For example, the Samaritans only accepted the Torah and part of Joshua, and the Sadducees held that only the Torah was truly authoritative. The Hebrew canon consists of three sections, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. By the time of Jesus, we hear of the Law and the Prophets, which in his time meant the Scriptures. In other words, the ones considered authoritative. But what about the Writings? That collection of documents was not to be canonized for a couple of centuries or more. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The word canon comes from a Greek word meaning a measuring rod, so it is an apt metaphor for an authoritative standard of religious law and thought. There is a famous story about a pagan who went to the famous rabbi Shammai and asked to be instructed in the entire Torah while standing on one foot. The story relates that Shammai chased the impudent questioner away with a measuring rod that was in his hand, or, in other words, with a cannon. Another characteristic of cannons throughout history is that they tend to be fixed. The books in them do not change. No new items were added or removed. Obviously, one can choose to ignore one passage or book over another, but the canon remains, and the interpreter remains answerable to it. The section of the Bible called the Prophets was apparently canonized no later than 200 BCE, and probably took place quite a bit earlier. We know this thanks to an intertestamental work called The Wisdom of Ben Sirach, Since Sirach considered the time of the prophets to be long over, it argues for a much earlier canonization of the prophets. Unfortunately, the records of Jewish history from this period are fragmentary and often lacking for the history of the religion itself. The fact that the book of Daniel is included not in the prophets but in the writings is taken by some to suggest that the canon closed before the start of the Maccabean Revolt, which is the setting in which Daniel was written. Jewish tradition and early rabbinic writings give us some clues about the criteria that governed the selection of books to be included in the prophets. The primary criterion was agreement with the Torah, or perhaps more precisely, it is suggested by something in the Torah. Traditional interpretation places prophets over priests on matters of spiritual authority. Even though Moses functioned in many ways as a priest, 
his traditional authorship of the Torah was in the role of a prophet. In fact, what appears to have been a guiding principle over time was whether a certain book or set of books could be ascribed to the authorship of a prophet. Hence, in writing the Psalms, David becomes a prophet. And we can also now understand the attribution of books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes to Solomon, also viewed as part of this larger prophetic tradition. Some books found their way into the prophets more easily than others. Ezekiel was not accepted at first, and if you've read certain parts of it, it's easy to understand why St. Jerome, one of the few church fathers who bothered to learn Hebrew, reported that the rabbis would not let anyone under the age of 30 read the book. The vision of God's glory in chapter 1 was considered confusing and even dangerous should anyone try to puzzle out the more mystical aspects of the text, even to the point of destroying the interpreter. There is a lot of speculation about what tipped the scales to allow its inclusion. One reason that makes sense to me is that Ezekiel seems to have understood that the future of Judaism lay in the hands of the exiles, who by then were scattered all over the Near East and beyond, creating closely-knit, thriving communities that shared a common cultural and spiritual bond in spite of the distances between them. Just because we see the prophets placed alongside the Torah in the canon, this does not place them on equal footing. Some books are more canonical than others, it would seem. I've already mentioned the use of the Torah as both a literal and figurative standard against which candidates for inclusion were tested. This continues in the use of the prophets throughout Jewish history. The Torah was the ultimate authority. The violation of a rule specified in the prophets did not carry the same level of punishment as a violation of a rule found in the Torah. The Torah also claims some preeminence over the prophets because, according to tradition, the days of the prophets are long gone. There would be no more of them. The Torah, however, is universal, and in some traditions existed even before creation itself. This raises an interesting point that lies at the heart of Jewish practices of scriptural interpretation, namely that the text can convey authority to other texts that derive from it. For example, we've talked about Midrash, the Jewish interpretive practice of using a text or even a tiny detail of the Torah and expanding it, embellishing it into something completely other than the original core text. The idea is that while such a new text is not canonical, it does have some authority based on its origination in the Torah, no matter how far that connection is stretched. But we have not really struck to the question of why the prophets were considered necessary to add to the canon at all. There are a lot of suggested reasons, but I'm inclined to favor the notion that when you are dealing with a complex system, especially something as complex as the life of a community, trying to infuse simple rules often results in unintended consequences, or their subversion by the motives and objectives of others. Every now and then one must question the system, and even question the way the rules are applied. Such was the prophetic voice. 
I'm thinking, for instance, of Isaiah, who literally would do away with the entire system of sacrifices, feasts, holidays, temple cult, etc., and replace it with vigorous works on behalf of the vulnerable. We also have in the prophetic writings numerous case studies, if you will, of how the law was or was not applied and the consequences that followed. It was not exactly mere commentary on the Torah. It was more than that. It was a necessary adjunct to take dry legalisms and enflesh them into a living tradition. I don't want to end this segment without returning to the story I began at the beginning of this podcast about the pagan who insisted he be instructed on the Torah while standing on one foot. Rabbi Shammai drove him away, but another rabbi, Hillel, converted the man. In answer to his challenge, Hillel replied, That which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the entire Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. The last section, the writings, took a bit longer to settle into a canonical form agreed upon by all. This collection is kind of a mishmash of different genres of texts, hymns, proverbs, other forms of poetry, wisdom literature, and so forth. It includes Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Esther, and others. Some, like Ecclesiastes, which is highly skeptical and in some places flat-out heretical, are easy to understand why they caused consternation. Others, like the Book of Chronicles, might be less clear, since it covers much of the same material as in Kings, often verbatim. The quoting of these books in other works indicates that by the time of the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, they were considered authoritative, but had not been elevated to canonical status. Another reason why these books had some difficulty making it into the canon was because they appeared after the time when prophecies had supposedly ended, with the end of the life of Nehemiah in the latter half of the 5th century BCE. However, there were some allowances made. For instance, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and the Song of Song slipped through because of their attribution to Solomon since there were other books that appeared with Solomon as the alleged author that did not make the cut, we have to assume that it was more than just the name of the pseudepigraphic author that made the difference. The Book of Chronicles also ended up in the writings for the same reason. It missed the prophetic cutoff date. Daniel was allowed because, ostensibly, it was set during the Babylonian captivity, but it was absolutely not really about that period, but a tale for a much more recent and pressing crisis, the Seleucid effort to wipe out the Jewish religion, and the decades-long struggle by the Maccabees and their allies to preserve it. We don't have direct records of the many debates that raged over the composition and canonicity of this last group of scriptures, 
but there are some accounts in rabbinic literature. A council at the city of Jamnia in 90 CE was supposed to have settled the status of the canon, and for much of the 20th century modern scholarship accepted this conclusion. However, other scholars pointed out that the Mishnah, which is part of the Talmud and dates from around 200 CE, records further ongoing debates. Still more research showed that many of these debates do not mention actual books or provide lists and may in fact have been about other things entirely. In other words, the process and canonization of the writings remains unclear. All we can say with any certainty is that the canon seems to have hardened into its present shape around 300 CE. Another problem is that nowhere do we see a clear set of criteria that determine the canonical from the non-canonical, with the exception of the conformity to the Torah used in the case of the prophets. Common usage seems to be one criterion, along with the provenance to a prophet mentioned above. Both Josephus and Philo mentioned truthfulness as a criterion, but what that meant in 2nd or 3rd century BCE Palestine is a little hard to gauge, and it is certain that those criteria shifted with the needs of the people from time to time. Remember, the solidification of the writings took longer than that of the Torah and the Prophets. An additional problem surrounded the differences between the books found in the traditional Hebrew texts and those in the Greek Septuagint. Most of the books that now form the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Apocrypha were in Greek translation only. When Jerome made his famous translation of the scriptures into Latin, he worked from the Hebrew and the Greek when doing the Old Testament. He felt that because, in his mind, the Hebrew was more authentic, any book that did not appear in the Hebrew corpus was suspect. The Jews had their own reasons for being wary of some of these books. One reason was that as Christianity started to grow, Christians found that many of the books from the intertestamental period concerned a final cosmic battle followed by a renewed world. These apocalyptic texts, originally written as part of the Jewish hope that they could throw off the yoke of foreign domination, spoke to the early Christian hope of the second coming of Jesus. In the eyes of some Jewish religious authorities, that was reason enough to abandon them to the Christians, apart from the fact that in some cases the Christians rewrote significant parts of them to more closely reflect their hopes. Even though the quick return of Christ, or parousia, as it was called, did not happen, these texts continued to be influential among Christians well into the medieval period. But an even better reason for letting go of these apocalyptic texts was that they created an expectation that led the Jewish people into two utterly disastrous wars against Rome on the mistaken belief that God would once more fight their battles and back the Jewish rebels against the legions of Rome with legions of angels. It was not to be. Tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Jews died. Many ended up in the slave markets of Rome, and many more were scattered in a more permanent diaspora. The lessons of the later prophets that God would not save his people by means of military liberation were forgotten in the wake of the Maccabees and their success. 
I suppose in that sense both the Jews and the Christians took some disappointment away from these books. But the rabbis who struggled to forge this last part of the canon understood all too well that these books were nothing but trouble and left them out of the canon, without even a second-string deuterocanonical status. At the same time, it's not entirely fair to write off these books as cruel jokes, however unintended as such. Apocalyptic literature, in particular, with its triumph of good over evil, victory over death, justice rendered in a final judgment, all left their mark on both Christianity and Judaism. But more important was the spirit behind these works, a theme of the times perhaps best summarized by Hans Kung in the foreword to his magnum opus on being a Christian. It was that the world must be changed, positively and radically changed. It was a time in which the disparity between the powerful and the powerless, the rich and the poor, the educated and the ignorant, was as wide as it had ever been, with every vice and abuse of power that went with it. In spite of the best efforts of well-meaning men and women, the world was still a mess. It was, to be sure, the perfect time for a Messiah, and that is what the apocalyptic corpus promised, however vaguely or misleadingly. But the Hebrew canon continued, without most of its apocalyptic heritage, and has remained the basis of perhaps the most persistent religious communities in history. I will not say the oldest, that belongs to Hinduism totally, but the ability to maintain communal cohesion in places other than your ancestral lands, and doing so in a way that maintains continuity with other such communities throughout the world, for well in excess of two thousand years, is an achievement nothing short of astonishing. If you ask how it happened, how they were able to do it, even the cynics among them are likely to credit the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, and the tradition of study and interpretation that grew up around them. It has been noted that the holy path starts at the point where you run out of answers. No one will seriously claim that the Hebrew scriptures contain all the answers, but they have engendered a tradition that teaches its adherents how to keep asking the right questions. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Music